There's a great deal of talk about the so-called debt bomb ticking away in the banking system with particular reference to these massive loans made by many of the larger banks to communist and underdeveloped nations. Now let's analyze what this is and how it has come about. First of all, the Federal Reserve System has flooded the banks with newly created fiat money, as we have seen. What this causes is that the larger banks, which, as we know, are protected from failure by government, now have this money on their hands and they prowl the world, seeking underdeveloped countries to accept loans so that they can collect their interest, or more correctly called royalty. Well, the heads of these governments are more than happy to accept the money, and with it they launch gigantic socialist projects to enhance their political power. Now, these projects supposedly are going to earn their own way when completed, but because they are socialistic schemes, of course, they never do. They almost always result in gigantic cost overruns and operating losses, which must be paid by the already impoverished citizens of those countries. And so the next step in this development is for the banks to agree to increase the size of the original loan in order to fund the cost overruns or to expand the projects, which supposedly will now allow it to operate on a self-sufficient basis. Now, when the governments come to that inevitable point where they cannot repay their loans, then the banks step in and grant them an extension and agree to what they call a rollover which means that the term of the loan is extended for another six or nine months, provided only that the government agrees to continue paying the royalty or interest on the loan. Now, remember, the royalty is all that the bank really cares about. Because if the country actually paid back the debt, the bank would only have to go out and find some other government or large corporation to accept an equal loan to replace it. You see, if you don't have borrowers... You can't collect royalties, and then you go out of business. That's the essence of banking. You must have borrowers, and so you don't really want these loans to be repaid. The money came out of the ink well in the first place, and when the loan is repaid, it disappears back into the well, where it is of no use to the bankers at all. So they don't really want the loans repaid so long as the borrower continues sending in the interest or the royalty. And so eventually, the loans are rolled over and expanded. And this is done so many times that the socialist governments come to the point where they cannot even continue to pay the royalty. And then they threaten default. At this point, the banks begin to face a serious problem. They must not have their borrowers default on their loans, especially loans of that size. Now, it isn't that they would lose anything if they did, because they wouldn't. Remember, they created that money out of nothing, and therefore nothing is exactly what they would lose. But they must avoid default for other reasons. One reason is that default means a stop to their royalty payments, which, of course, is their lifeblood. The other reason is that if a borrower defaults, then the bank is required to show the amount of that default on its public financial statement as a non-performing loan, or if there's no hope of reviving it, as an outright loss. Now, if this happens, then the true nature of the bank's financial condition is revealed for all to see. When loans of this size, which one day are carried on the books as assets, suddenly are moved across the page and listed as liabilities or losses, 
the bank becomes, in terms of normal accounting concepts, bankrupt. Its liabilities and losses greatly exceed its assets, and the trend shows that the condition will probably continue. Now, this quite naturally will cause the public to question the stability of that bank and its worthiness to continue acting as the guardian of their funds. Investors will divest themselves of the bank's stocks, causing the value of those shares to plummet on the market. And especially depositors will rush to transfer their deposits to more secure havens. In other words, there will be a run on the bank, one of the cabal's most dreaded events. Now, as an aside, it's important to realize that most of what is being discussed here in terms of communist and underdeveloped countries also applies to many of the nation's largest corporations, which are now so deeply in debt that no one really seriously expects them to repay those debts. So what does the bank do then, finally, to prevent a default? (laughs) It loans the country the money it needs to pay the interest. Incredible as that may seem, that is exactly what has been happening now for well over a decade. Furthermore, the country is not interested in borrowing more money and incurring even higher interest obligations merely to be able to pay interest back to the banks. No, the only way that they're willing to do that is if the banks also increase the size of the principal of the loan so that the politicians can have more money to further enhance their popularity and consolidate their political power, not to mention the lining of their own personal pockets. And so we aren't just loaning money to these countries to pay back the interest but we must increase the size of the capital part of the loan also in order to make it attractive to the political component of the partnership. Well, the next step in this incredible game is for the United States Treasury and the International Monetary Fund to step into the picture and to supply U.S. tax dollars to the indebted countries, supposedly as loans, which everyone knows will never be repaid, in order for those countries to continue paying royalties to the banks a little while longer. By the time this stage is reached, and it was reached several years ago, the end is near, and everyone playing the game knows it. No one can tell how long this final stage can be prolonged, but of one thing we can be certain, it cannot continue indefinitely. When the process finally comes to a halt, It will bring disastrous consequences to someone. What is happening today is merely the maneuvering of forces to determine who that someone is going to be. And it's with that question in mind that we turn now away from the past and the present and take a cautious but hard glimpse into the future. What lies ahead? That's a question that everyone asks. Obviously, no one can answer for certain, not even the cabal. But I think I can make a pretty good guess. I believe that the future will follow one of three possible scenarios. An optimistic scenario, a pessimistic scenario, or a realistic one. Now, let's take a look at the optimistic scenario first. In order for an optimistic scenario to unfold, I think everyone would agree we would have to have certain reforms enacted very quickly, so quickly, in fact, that it would be in time to avert a crisis. 
Now, what would those reforms be? I see four of them, at least. First, we would have to repeal the legal tender laws, perhaps the most fundamental of all reforms, because without these legal tender laws, we would be able to escape the burden of fiat money simply by refusing to accept it and using instead gold coins, other currencies which are backed by gold, books of tickets to Disneyland, or anything else of real value that we choose to use. But as long as we have legal tender laws on the books, we are forced by law to use fiat money. Those laws must be repealed. The second reform is to abolish central banking. Now, there are several movements afoot today to eliminate the Federal Reserve System. That's good as far as it goes, but it doesn't go far enough. Some of these measures actually merely are talking about turning over the powers of the Federal Reserve System to the Treasury Department or some other agency of the federal government, which wouldn't change things a bit. The Federal Reserve System will not be reformed merely by placing it nominally under the control of the Treasury. Remember, it's in this kind of quasi-government control in most other countries, and it hasn't changed the nature of the central bank mechanism one bit. And if we did that in this country, it still would be a central bank mechanism, and the same people would control it either way. Central banking must be abolished outright. A third reform, a return to the gold standard. To do this, we would first have to define what is a dollar. That would be a very interesting and enlightening experience. First of all, I would suggest that we would audit and assay the government gold supply at Fort Knox and elsewhere. You realize that no one is really quite sure how much gold is there and what the purity is? It needs to be audited and assayed. Then, we should divide the weight of this gold by the number of dollars existing as demand deposits. This will tell us the true value of the dollar in terms of gold. How many paper dollars are out there and demands for paper dollars and how much gold is there? Now we know the value of the dollar in terms of gold. At current levels, the true value of the dollar, as far as I can determine with current statistics, is about one seventeen hundredth of an ounce of gold. That means, and listen to this carefully, that means that the realistic price of gold should be today about $1,700 per ounce. Interesting, isn't it? All right. The next thing we'd have to do is require 100% gold behind all of our demand deposits. I believe that all banks should be required by law to hold a 100% gold reserve behind its M1 money supply. That's the demand deposits. Now, this will make bank runs impossible, and it will greatly stabilize the money supply. Now, I have to admit for the purists among you, a law really shouldn't be necessary. All we should really have to do is require the banks to honor their contracts, just like any other business. But ladies and gentlemen, we have become so accustomed to making exceptions for the banking industry that it is now probably quite necessary to legislate a return to honesty and sanity. And finally, we need to abolish the FIDC and the FSLIC. These institutions offer false hope and false security to the American people. Let these financial institutions, the banks and the savings and loan associations, obtain private insurance if they feel there's a need to reassure their depositors. 
private insurance could be made available at very reasonable prices. But, of course, the insurers would take a hard look at the institutions they were insuring. The weak banks and SNLs simply wouldn't be able to get insurance. And that would be an excellent way for the public to evaluate those institutions. There are, of course, many other needed reforms, but I'd like to ask you this question. Do you really think that these reforms are going to happen immediately or in the very near future? I'm sorry to say I do not think they're going to happen. The level of enlightenment and public understanding in these matters today, it just isn't going to happen. Even if they were to happen at 9 o'clock tomorrow morning, we would still be in for big trouble. Because the process of monetary destruction already has gone too far. So let's turn to the second view into the future. That is the pessimistic scenario. I'd like to warn you in advance that the scenario I'm about to give you I do not believe is going to unfold, although it could. But nevertheless, this is a possibility. There could be a trigger event, any event which causes a run on the banking system demanding withdrawal of 1% or more of bank deposits could be that event. Now, that could be a collapse of several large U.S. corporations or savings and loan associations. But more likely, I think, it would be the failure of another major bank in the United States or in Europe or even in Hong Kong, brought about by the default of loans to third world and communist regimes. Because unfortunately, our destiny in America now is intertwined with the rest of the world. The professionals will act first. You see, money market funds are managed by professionals who watch market conditions very closely. They're up at 4 o'clock, 5 o'clock in the morning getting the latest reports, and they're on the job while most Americans are sleeping. Now, even though they exude confidence in the system to their clients, most of them are aware of the problem, even more so than you might think. And they will be quick to react to the first sign of a crisis. They will withdraw their funds as quickly as possible, first from the particular bank in trouble, and ultimately out of banks altogether, and probably into treasury certificates. Money market funds are the largest depositors in banks, so this exodus of deposits will be a catastrophic event. Then we could have the domino effect. A write-down of $4 billion to $5 billion on just one Latin American loan would equal about 10% of the entire net worth of the 171 largest U.S. banks. The publicity given to such an event would be fantastic. The collapse of one major money center bank would lead quickly to the others and to all of the smaller banks that depend on them for their own accounts. Of course, by the time the public catches on, the major action will already have taken place. By the time the public comes to their, to their bank to get their money, there simply will be no money to give. Now, why is that? That's true because there just isn't enough cash. There is not enough cash in the vaults of all the banks to meet the demand of the public. Realize that most money consists only of magnetic impulses in the computer. Of all the money that exists, only about 5% is in coin or currency. And most of that is already outside of the banks, 
in cash registers, in pocketbooks, and in mattresses. That's where it is, not in the banks. The amount held by the banks is about one-half of one percent. The amount of currency required to handle a major run on the banks couldn't possibly be produced in time to meet that demand. You see, the Treasury's printing presses already are running 24 hours a day just to keep pace with existing demand. So you can imagine what would happen when the public lines up and they want to convert all of their checkbook money into cash. It simply cannot happen. So what will happen? The FDIC and the FSLIC simply will be paralyzed. The funds behind these organizations can only cover about 1% of their liabilities. Did you know that? All of this talk about your account being insured up to $100,000, don't worry, folks, the government is right behind you. The FDIC and the FSLIC funds can only cover about 1% of their liabilities. In time of crisis, of course, these funds could be legislatively expanded very quickly, which would represent massive inflation, by the way. But that also would take time, and there still wouldn't be enough money printed to supply the demand. So I think if this unfolds, what we will see then is the declaration of a bank holiday, a nice word for meaning a closing of the banks by government decree in order to protect the banks, of course. Government and banking spokesmen will assure the public that everything is all right and that the only problem is the irrational behavior of a few alarmists. No one will believe it. Long lines of angry depositors will form at the banks. Bank employees will be threatened. Bomb threats will be made. Violence will break out. Police will be assigned to protect the banks. Possibly even the National Guard will be called out. People will no longer accept checks. Cash will become extremely valuable. Businesses will not be able to borrow money to continue operations. The entire economy will grind to a halt. Finally, the banks will be officially closed for a specific period to allow the cabal time to implement its plan. In this pessimistic scenario, we are assuming that the public is uninformed, And therefore, we have to assume that the public will not understand the true causes of the crisis. Those of you who have protected themselves will be resented by the public. You will be called hoarders, speculators, and exploiters. Those who tried to warn their friends will be blamed for bringing on the collapse by their lack of faith in the American system. It'll be your fault, you see. Politicians will rise to the challenge and offer sweeping reform of the system similar to what happened in 1913 when the Federal Reserve System was created supposedly as reform. I can assure you, ladies and gentlemen, politicians will not sit by and allow the country to slip into a depression, no matter how necessary or short-lived it would be. Because in this pessimistic scenario in which we assume the public is uninformed, such politicians would be swept out of office. And so we must conclude that the money supply will be greatly expanded by the Federal Reserve System. The purpose will be to flood the economy with new credit to ease the shortage of money. This process, by the way, already was started before the 1984 elections and right now is gaining momentum. The FDIC and the FSLIC 
will be inundated with money. The Federal Reserve System literally will flood the banks and savings and loans with fiat money. It will take several weeks to meet the demand, but eventually all small depositors will receive currency to cover their withdrawal slips. Money market funds and individuals with deposits over $100,000 will probably not be fully paid, but their numbers will be small. And pleasing the largest numbers of voters will be the name of the game. With money in their pockets at last, most people will perceive that the crisis is over and bankers and politicians will publicly congratulate each other at the wisdom of their actions. Then what will happen? I believe we will see dishonest accounting become legalized. In 1982, for example, the government allowed the savings and loan industry to conceal the fact that this industry was bankrupt even then by writing off their bad loans and actual losses over a 40-year period rather than showing the total in the actual year in which they were incurred. Now, can you imagine that? Writing off a loss over 40 years. Now, this didn't change reality, but it deceived the public and postponed the inevitable distribution of losses. The planners behind this scheme assumed that certainly within 40 years, inflation would have returned like a roaring lion and these losses would have been washed away through inflation. I believe that a similar device will be used to allow the banks to conceal their condition of bankruptcy by writing off their losses over 30 years or 40 years or 100 years, whatever it takes. Creative accounting of this kind also will not solve the problem completely, but it merely will buy additional time for the cabal to implement its final solution. What is the final solution? That will be to transfer all of the banking losses to the taxpayer. Now remember, the losses are real, and they must eventually be taken by someone. In this pessimistic scenario, I am assuming the public will remain ignorant of the mechanism of central banking, and therefore the cabal will have absolutely no difficulty transferring those losses to the taxpayer. Now this could be accomplished in three ways. One way would be the outright guarantee of repayment to cover the bank's losses. The second would be to purchase the bad loans by the Treasury or the Federal Reserve. The third way would be to provide something called capital certificates to the banks, which could be converted into money at the time there is a loan default. Now, this capital certificates business has the advantage of being obscure, but it's essentially the same as outright guarantee of the repayment. Now, this has already happened in June of 1985 when the FSLIC issued capital certificates to failing savings and loan associations. And so I believe this will probably be the path that they will follow. Now, somewhere along the line, ladies and gentlemen, a new multicolored U.S. currency will be issued. Now, there currently is a great deal of talk about this supposedly as a means of combating counterfeiters and organized crime. This is camouflage. The cabal which will issue this new currency constitutes the greatest example of counterfeiting and organized crime the world has ever seen. <laughs> I believe it is likely that the new currency will be issued at the time there is a bank holiday. Now, samples of this money have already been produced, and it's possible 
In fact, I think it's even likely that large quantities of this money are already stored awaiting just such a contingency. Now, it's true, large amounts of Federal Reserve notes also could be stored for this purpose, but the new money is more likely, in my opinion, because it will serve other purposes as well. And there are eight definite purposes. Number one, a smaller quantity will mask inflation. By exchanging 10 or 20 old dollars for one new dollar, a much smaller supply of money will suffice. Now, this will tend to obscure the reality of inflation because each new dollar will be more valuable or it will be perceived as more valuable than the old. Two, deeper changes in the monetary system can be obscured. I believe there will be a great deal of publicity given to the new money, and the public will be fascinated by the process. All you will be able to see and hear on the radio and the electronic news media is the discussion of the new money, the new money. And this will tend to divert attention away from far more important and fundamental changes being made at the same time. Three, the leadership image can be enhanced because such a dramatic innovation can be offered to the public as evidence that our leaders are really doing something. Four, potential troublemakers will be identified. You see, the government doesn't like individuals to use cash. This allows them to escape many types of surveillance and control, and those who bring in large amounts of cash for exchange will be automatically suspect, and I believe they will be placed into the master computer for future special attention. Five, stem the private international movement of capital. Very important. All bank transactions today are part of a computer record open to government monitoring. This makes it easy to monitor and restrict the movement of funds from one country to another. Now, in the past, even though there are laws to prohibit it, it was easy for individuals to move their money on their persons or by carrier to offshore banking havens or for investment in more secure markets overseas. The new currency is said to have metallic threads embedded in it to trigger security and X-ray devices at airports and other international terminals. And believe me, ladies and gentlemen, they fully intend to put a stop to this kind of international movement of capital. Six, confiscate large cash holdings. It's possible that individuals will have to obtain government authorization to be allowed to exchange large amounts of currency. Those without demonstrable need possibly will lose everything over a modest figure. This has happened in other countries, and it could easily happen here, too. Seven, clamp down on underground economy. A recent congressional study revealed that about $85 billion in cash is never put into the banks. That represents approximately $1,545 in cash for each household. A tremendous amount. It's also a fact that $100 bills are the fastest-growing denomination of currency and already account for almost one-third of the value of all currency in circulation. $100 bills. Now, that is not the currency of exchange. That's the currency of hoarding. Now, this is partly due to inflation, but mostly due to private holdings by people who frankly distrust the banks and possibly distrust the government. This fact can be seen very clearly in strike-bound cities. After the paychecks stop coming in, 
it's not at all unusual for idle workers to be seen making purchases with large denomination bills, mostly 50s and $100 bills. But reason number eight, in my opinion, perhaps, is the most important reason to the cabal for bringing out a new currency at this time. And that is because it is a necessary transition to a world currency. The new money will get the public used to the concept of change and also to the loss of traditional American symbols on their money. This is a necessary psychological transition to the acceptance of an international currency, which, of course, is the ultimate goal. Only with an international currency issued by an international central bank will the cabal be able to control the entire world economy without danger of some countries or some individuals within those countries escaping their influence. So what are the consequences of this pessimistic scenario? There are two major ones. First, we will see hyperinflation. The money supply will grow by the amount of the bailout plus the amount of deficit for welfare, subsidies, and other protectionist measures supposedly offered to cure the effects of previous protectionist measures. This will start as double-digit inflation and rapidly escalate, in my opinion, to over 500%. It could go over 1,000% before the cabal offers its final reform of international currency. And the other consequence will be price, wage, and profit controls imposed, supposedly to stop inflation. Now, this probably will be done by direction of a president who says that he is opposed to the measure. You must remember most of our wars have been declared by presidents who publicly proclaimed they didn't like war and promised to keep us out of war. Most of our biggest deficit budgets are offered by presidents who came into office claiming that they would put an end to budget deficits. And you must remember that in 1971, President Nixon, who said he hated price controls, was the first president to introduce price controls when inflation reached the, quote, intolerable, end quote, level of 4%. So in short, the bailout will not eliminate the losses. The bailout will merely transfer those losses and multiply them in the process from the communist and third world countries and from the owners of the banks to the American taxpaying middle class. It will wipe out all their savings, their insurance funds, and most of the equity positions in their homes and businesses. History teaches that hyperinflation is fertile ground for seeds of violent revolution. Despair led people to grasp at the promises of Lenin in Russia, Hitler in Germany, and Mao Zedong in China. The pattern continues today in Asia, Africa, and Latin America. The United States is not immune. In this country, the desperate and uninformed will be attracted to the revolutionary rhetoric of communism, believing that their woes were caused by a decadent capitalist system there will be terrorism and revolutionary insurgency. But in my opinion, ladies and gentlemen, these movements will not succeed in overthrowing the government. Their primary effect will be to frighten the American people into accepting totalitarian measures supposedly to quell the revolution. 
This also will allow the cabal to appear moderate in its ultimate destruction of our constitutional rights. Increased government regulations, supposedly to restore public order and economic stability, will become a way of life. There will be no opportunity for citizen protest or opposition. Americans will learn that one cannot have political or personal freedom without economic freedom, and we will have lost both. Now, what lies at the end of that road? I believe it was clearly envisioned by George Orwell in his book, 1984. In my opinion, only the date was in error with that book. He foresaw collectivization of the masses, thought control, the impossibility of rebellion, and an ultra-elite directing a so-called stable society. The Rothschild formula was the primary method of control, according to Orwell, war and the threat of war. The world was divided into three hostile regions. He called them Oceania, Eurasia, and East Asia. Orwell explains with these words, quote, Actually, the three philosophies are barely distinguishable, and the social systems which they support are not distinguishable at all. Everywhere there is the same pyramidal structure, the same worship of a semi-divine leader, the same economy existing by and for continuous warfare. It follows that the three superstates not only cannot conquer one another, but would gain no advantage by doing so. On the contrary, so long as they remain in conflict, they prop up one another like three sheaves of corn. And as usual, the ruling groups of all three powers are simultaneously aware and unaware of what they're doing. Their lives are dedicated to world conquest, but they also know that it is necessary that the war should continue everlastingly and without victory. War, it will be seen, is now a purely internal affair. In the past, the ruling groups of all countries, although they might recognize their common interest and therefore limit the destructiveness of war, did fight against one another, and the victor always plundered the vanquished. In our own day, they are not fighting against one another at all. The war is waged by each ruling group against its own subjects, and the object of the war is not to make or prevent conquests of territory but to keep the structure of society intact, end quote. And now perhaps we are able, ladies and gentlemen, to solve the Red China riddle. Why would the United States, which according to Orwell would be called Oceania, after having built the Soviet Union, called Eurasia, having built the Soviet Union into a credible military foe, now embark on the same course on behalf of Red China, East Asia, Orwell solves the riddle. To divide the world into three hostile totalitarian states which will be forever at war with each other. To provide the existence of a supposed external threat to motivate loyalty from their citizens, to justify totalitarian control, and thus to ensure that the three systems will remain stable, as they call it, that is, without internal dissent. To bring this up to date, let's take a look at something called the Report from Iron Mountain. This was a think tank study on alternate ways for a government to control its citizens, or in other words, to stabilize society, without war. They said, 
Here we are at a time in history when it's possible that we could form a world government and through disarmament prevent war. Now, how can we control our citizens in the absence of war? And the conclusion of this think tank study was that there was no substitute for war. The report was commissioned in the fall of 1963 by an unnamed government agency. The evidence points quite clearly at the Defense Department under the personal direction of then Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara. The report was not intended for public release, but fortunately a copy was leaked to the press by one of the members of the group that wrote it, and it was published for public consumption by Delta Books in 1967. It was clear from the later events that unfolded and became public that the report was prepared under a grant to the Hudson Institute. Now, that's a think tank located at Croton-on-Hudson in New York. It's located at the base of Iron Mountain. Now, Iron Mountain is interesting because it envelops a massive nuclear shelter for hundreds of large U.S. corporations. Now, most of these companies use the shelter for the storage of important documents, but several of them also maintain emergency corporate headquarters there. Such companies as Standard Oil, Manufacturers Hanover Trust, and Shell Oil maintain corporate headquarters inside that mountain. The question arose, is the report authentic? When it was published, the White House was quick to deny that it was authentic. The Washington Post uh, called it a delightful satire, and so did Herman Kahn, who was director of the Hudson Institute. And so all of the right people said that it was a fraud. But... On November 26, 1967, the report from Iron Mountain was reviewed in the same Washington Post by Herschel McLandris. Now, Herschel McLandris is a pseudonym for Harvard professor John Kenneth Galbraith. Now, Galbraith said that he knew firsthand of the report's authenticity because he had been invited to participate in it. Now, although he wasn't able to be part of the official group, he was consulted from time to time. And he also had been asked to keep the entire project secret. This is what Galbraith wrote, quote, As I would put my personal repute behind the authenticity of this document, so would I testify to the validity of its conclusions. My reservations relate only to the wisdom of releasing it to an obviously unconditioned public. End quote. So you get the picture? He participated in this. He knows it's valid. He agrees with its conclusions. He just thinks that the public is too stupid to understand it. So now, what did this report really say? First of all, it stated that the authors agreed that morality could not be allowed as a factor in their deliberations. They threw out all questions of good and evil, whether life was good and death was bad, whether destruction was bad or anything. The only good which they could allow as a moral question in this study, was the survival and stability of the government. Whatever caused society to be stable and to survive was good. Anything which caused it to disintegrate was bad. Then they said that war in the past had been the only means by which governments had been able to perpetuate themselves. And then they asked the question, is it possible now to find a substitute for war? under the possibility of world government and disarmament. 
Under such conditions without war, what would the government do, they asked themselves. What could the government do to perpetuate itself? What are the possible alternatives to war? And they listed five of them, or at least five categories. Incredible as it may seem, the first one was blood games. As in ancient Rome, they said that there's a certain mass passion that the people express when they see blood and killing and pain and anguish and conflict. Let the people work these things out in blood games. Perhaps violent sports could be expanded to fill this role. A second possibility. How about a war against environmental pollution? Let's get everybody worried about the environment and a war against pollution. Raise that to the level of a war against a real physical enemy. And they said even if necessary, they would consider deliberately poisoning the environment to make the threat more credible. Third possibility. How about civilian work armies? Let's call poverty the enemy. We'll raise work armies to conquer poverty. And also they said it could serve a very important secondary purpose, and that is to discipline society's dissidents. If you don't like what's going on, you might be conscripted into a work army. And they described this in plain English, and these are their words, a modern, sophisticated form of slavery. That's their phrase. Four. How about the threat of invasion from outer space? Maybe that will do it. And they said that experiments with this may already have been tried. And fifth. They said if no perceptible threat is found to exist of sufficient magnitude, it will be necessary to invent one. The report concluded with these words, quote, When asked how best to prepare for the advent of peace, we must first reply as strongly as we can that the war system cannot responsibly be allowed to disappear until, one, we know exactly what it is we plan to put in its place, and two, we are certain beyond reasonable doubt that these substitute institutions will serve their purposes in terms of the survival and stability of society. It is uncertain at this time whether peace will ever be possible. It is far more questionable that it would be desirable even if it were demonstrably attainable. End quote. So there you have, ladies and gentlemen, the end of the pessimistic scenario. The future world would be nothing short of universal serfdom and perpetual war. And it could be in our lifetime. If it does become reality, then there will be no economic survival for any of us. Even those who manage to profit from making the right moves within the various investment markets, or perhaps I should say especially those people, will be in virtual chains. Now, will it happen? Well, it could, but as I said a moment ago, I think not. Remember, this is a survival seminar, which means that it is based on the assumption that we will not become modern serfs. Now, it's true that the further we travel towards serfdom, the more difficult and painful will be the turnaround. So the question is, if the optimistic scenario is too optimistic, and the pessimistic scenario is too pessimistic, then what is the scenario for survival? 
and is it in fact a realistic one? We will turn to that question next.